This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Many people are turned off at hearing the term systemic racism, presuming that the term is used to accuse an individual of racial animus. But that's not how it works. Jonathan Blanks with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity details what systemic racism is and, as importantly, what it is not. You wrote a piece for uh, Free Op. The title is What Systemic Racism Is and Isn't. And uh, I think this piece is so valuable because uh, there's a large fraction of the American public that would hear the phrase systemic racism and not understand what it means when that term is employed by people who study this. Uh, just as economics or any other social science has terms that are used like allocation uh, or something like that, um, the broad public might not really understand what that means. And of course, it does have a specific meaning. So when you use the term systemic racism, what do you mean and what do scholars mean? Right. So systemic racism is a term of art to sort of uh, break down what how racism affects people in American society. So racism being an overly broad term can mean anything from a clutched purse on an elevator to a lynching. So systemic racism is this one kind where that explains how systems can have uh, adverse impact on racial categories, whether it's black people or Asians or whomever. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear systemic racism, they think, oh, it's a system full of racism racist people like police departments like we a lot of times you hear this with with police officers that are like oh well cops are systemically racist there means you know they're just out there doing terrible things to black people all the time and because they don't like black people that's not what systemic racism is it what what we're trying to say is the system as it operates hurts black people in certain ways and it can be done by people who have no racial animus whatsoever it can be done by black police officers in cities like dc whose political system is run primarily by black people and yet they still have these terrible outcomes with how the police department operate how they go about their business and that's what we mean by systemic racism it's not like all cops are racist so when when people commonly use the term racism uh they mean malice they mean some sort of a hardening of the heart in a way or they mean some sort of fear and what I understand you to be saying is that there are uh, the way institutions function, we have disparate outcomes for different groups of people. Absolutely. And it, it's something that happened I, like when, I, when we were all growing up, you know, I'm, you know, in my mid 40s, growing up in the 80s and 90s, you, you think about racism is like one of the worst things you can be. You know, racist is the worst thing you can be. Racism is terrible. We look at back at American history and we look how racism has like, you know, segregation and slavery has just been horrible, awful things. And so we've all internalized being racist is bad. But because our system still has these uh, disparate outcomes and still affect people differently, when people ta start talking about systemic racism, they're, they're just thinking, well, no, we all, all the things that we did that are so horrible, they're in the past. And my, you know, my dad is a cop and he's not a racist. How could you be saying these things? And, and so it's really important that we all get on the same page because what we've been trained to think about what racism is, this really awful malice, 
hatred of uh, people because of what their skin color is or where they come from. And it's not what we're talking about in, uh, in, pub in the public policy arena. We're just talking about, hey, the way that black neighborhoods are policed are a lot different than the way white neighborhoods are policed. And the fact that we actually have black and white neighborhoods is in itself a problem, right? And these are, so the, we use these terms of art like structural racism and institutional racism to say, okay, so this is how these terrible outcomes happen, even though they are being put forth a lot of times by people who think they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, that, that, that's the one thing is that when you say that systemic racism is a problem, you are not leveling an accusation about any individual. Absolutely. It's it's really about what the cops do and what they're being asked to do. And a lot of times what they're being asked to do by people who, who mean well. I gave uh, testimony in Little Rock, Arkansas a few years ago. They were uh, as an advisory commission to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And they're like looking at uh, racial disparities in mass incarceration. And I was like, well, I'm not really an incarceration specialist. I talk more about policing, but I can tell you how policing adds to this. And there happened to be a recent spate of um, violence in uh, black neighborhoods in, in Little Rock. And the police department policy was, okay, so we're going to go into this, we're in this neighborhood and we're going to dedicate special police forces to pull people over and look for guns. And sure enough, they did pull over a six months period. They pulled, they recovered like 50 weapons. They didn't say if they were guns or not, but they said weapons, but they had to make 6,000 traffic stops to find those weapons, which is a very, very low hit rate. And most of the people they stopped were black. Most of the people they stopped were innocent of any crime whatsoever. And the, here we have a police department that's trying to do the right thing by lowering crime because they think doing stops and looking for guns will lower crime. And so that's what they're doing. And they, they're doing this in black neighborhoods, but it's basically treating a bunch of black people like criminals. And black people resent that. And that's what we mean. But like that, that's that's how structural racism happens. It's people who are trying to do the right, sometimes trying to do the right thing. And but it still has this impact because being pulled over and having your car searched is not a small thing. It, it it's like having your life turned out on the side of the road and you're you're just going about your life, doing just coming home from work. And that I don't think people understand, like just regular police contact that has nothing to do with arrest, has nothing to do with incarceration can have harms in and of itself. And so when we when we criticize this, and we use terms like structural racism, we're not saying, oh, that cop pulled that person over because they're black and they're racist. It's because they're using a tactic that is almost exclusively used in black neighborhoods against almost exclusively black people, and that has costs. In terms of framing policy here, it seems like it is a, a real difficult uh, problem to address. That is, uh, establishing a set of policies that, and you really it seems like you would need some some pretty serious economic thinking, understanding incentives, and uh, what the likely result—not necessarily the result that we hope for, or the hope the result that we would hope to avoid—but what looks likely from a given set of policies surrounding policing. So, what's in your view? What is the first step to address systemic racism? from a policy perspective and understand what the likely consequences of certain kinds of policing will be. I, I think basically, you know, it can be as simple as just treat people how you want to be treated. Like if, if we get back to the constitutional guidelines of how police are supposed to operate, basically the idea of the fourth amendment is, you know, you're, you're secure in your pa person's paper and effects from government search. 
and, and, and from seizure, right? That seems pretty straightforward. Now, Fourth Amendment law has gone all over the place. But basically, if we break that into plain English, it's like you should be able to go about your life without being stopped and searched by cops or having your house searched by cops, you know, without the cops having a very good reason to do so. But because the Supreme Court has twisted the Fourth uh, Amendment to basically say, well, if the cop has a kind of a seeking suspicion and he does, he just pats the outside of your clothes and, or he gets, cons- or if he asks you if he can search your pockets or your car, then it's okay. Um, and, but again, they only, they primarily use those permissions against black people. They, again, it just all falls apart. But if, if we retreat back to the idea of what the fourth amendment meant, the idea to be free from government intrusion in your life without really good reason, then all of a sudden those problems go away. And then we look at different policing strategies that work that don't require that intrusion that uh, the Supreme Court has allowed. Just because just because it's allowed doesn't mean it should be done, right? So if you look at evidence-based policing research, uh, it's relatively new. Uh, the, the really great uh, work comes out of Arizona State and George Mason University just across the river in Fairfax. Um, and they actually show that Visible policing, visible cops in co- cops in uh, in squad cars in places where uh, crime has been happening. We, you can call them hot spots. You can you know just say whatever you want to want to say there. That actually deters crime in ways that doesn't pop up elsewhere because for some reason crime tends to be very location based. Data show, and so if you put visible cops in those places, crime can go down, and you don't have to stop and search everyone while you're there. But because cops have been incentivized to, you know, by police, by, you know, politicians who say, okay, crime is up. What are you, you going to do about it? They're incentivized to produce numbers and say, okay, well, we got this many guns off the street and we, or we got this many, we confiscated this many drugs. And to do that, you have to do that invasive policing again. And so it's really thinking about figuring out how to change the incentives from uh, politicians to stop asking the cops to do these things to produce evidence of them doing something instead of actually making the public safer in ways that don't necessarily require arrest or confiscation. So use the actual requirements of suspicion that is particularized and based on an individual rather than some group? Yeah, it's amazing. There isn't a a lot of people say, well, one of the arguments I get a lot is, well, black people commit crime at a higher rate than white people, and therefore that justifies what cops do. Um, even if that were so, um, and, I, it, 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 and I haven't looked closely at the data because, it, again, an individualized suspicion is like my baseline, but there isn't a, well, more people who look like you commit these crimes exception to the Constitution. Individualized suspicion is quite important. It's absolutely the baseline of being left alone by the government, and we should revert to that. And it's it seems pretty simple, but at the same time, it's really hard to get cops to change what they do because you know my dad is a cop. I've been I've been studying this stuff for a while. Police departments are really loath to look at ways of changing that aren't they're they're very instinctual. They're just like okay, well this is this is what we've done in the past and it's worked for us, so we're just going to continue doing that instead of like looking at evidence, bringing in. analyst to say, okay, is this actually working or is this actually doing more harm than good? Even though we got guns off the street, you know, what, how, what was that cost? The pitch that, that I've made to Republican leaning friends, uh, regarding, you know, I lived in Louisville for many years. I live just outside of Louisville today. Uh, and following the case of, uh, Breonna Taylor, the idea that, uh, people 
feeling secure in their homes and being able to be a part of society without undue suspicion, that's, that's really the promise of uh, the Constitution itself. And when there is an entire group of people that do not feel like they are a part of that franchise, that is a problem. And it is especially a problem for people who want the Constitution to be that baseline for law and order to exist. They, they, they claim to celebrate these rights and these documents, but unless they're tr- actually working to make good on that promise for people who don't look like them, you know, I have a hard time taking it seriously. Absolutely. If you look at the history of this country, the promise has always been different than the execution, right? And I, it's something that kind of bothers me about the language um, that a lot of people who I, again, mean well, and I agree with them and it should work this way. But when we, we always talk about, you know, if you get stopped by a police officer, you, you know, don't talk to him and say, am I being detained? And if they ask for a consent to search, say, I do not consent to search. Um, and as it plays out in reality, uh, it's not always the same. And if you live in a neighborhood where you're over-policed and the, and the police feel that they can, you know, violate your fourth amendment rights with relative impunity because of qualified immunity, or just because they know you're not going to fight it because you have a record or whatever. And again, this is going to always come down hardest on people of color and in poor, particularly in poor black neighborhoods that are abused by police on the regular. The idea that like, oh, I can just tell the police officer no is it, it's kind of ridiculous it, it, to, to a lot of people, I think. Um, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, certainly uh, who a friend of Cato and late of the uh, DC Circuit Court of Appeals, she wrote a concurrence and an opinion a few years ago in USV Gross. She talked about the DC's gun recovery unit, and she never mentioned the word race once, but if you understand how DC operates and how it's set up geographically, you know exactly what she was getting at. And uh, I'm paraphrasing her, but she's like, okay, so let me get this right. Uh, In Southeast DC, you have cops coming out of cars, sometimes with their gun dro- guns drawn in tactical gear, asking for consent to search for a weapon of people, of a child walking down the street or an individual walking down the street. And she's like, try that on Prospect Street in Georgetown, which of course, Southeast DC is heavily black, uh, economically depressed, Northeast, I mean, uh, Northwest DC and Prospect Street, Georgetown, um, very white, posh uh, shopping district. It's like, if you're telling me that people in Prospect Street would think that this is freely given consent without coercion, you know, I would recommend the latest Sasquatch finding for you. She literally <laughs> um, referred to Bigfoot in, in this opinion. And she's like, I have to, because uh, this is Supreme Court president, I have to go along with this, but I don't agree with it. And so she's describing separate and unequal policing. And this is, again, sort of the institutional racism. She would never use the term. Um, she, she never is said used race in that, in that opinion, but that's exactly what she was getting at. And so long as people are saying, well, we have the right to say no, and we have the right to tell a police officer to you know, get bent, like that's not the case for people who have to deal with this stuff every day, and particularly officers in units that are tasked specifically with finding guns, like the gun recovery unit here in DC. Jonathan Blanks is a scholar at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>